The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore. Part 3, The 1800s, Early Medicine and Physiology. Although always a part of philosophy, psychology has close ties as well to biology, especially human physiology and medicine. As long as the mind is in some way attached to a body, this is inevitable. But, as you know, it took quite a bit of prying the mind apart from its religious connection with an immortal soul before that intimate connection between the body and mind could be acknowledged. The Ancients The first physician, at least as far as the Greeks were concerned, was Asclepius. Asclepius started a partially mystical society or guild of physicians that was to have an influence for many centuries to come. During that time, Asclepius gained a godlike status. Even Socrates, as he lay dying from the overdose of hemlock, told his student Crito to sacrifice a rooster to Asclepius, presumably in thanks for an easy death. This guild of physicians, this society, became associated with temples called Asclepion. These were retreats, places of healing, early hospitals, if you will, and they often had non-poisonous snakes crawling on the floors. The snakes were an omen of good. They symbolized the renewal of youth in the same way that a serpent casts off its skin. Asclepius is typically depicted wearing a robe, holding a rough-hewn, knotty tree limb around which is curled a single snake. This staff and snake is called the Rod of Asclepius. Most medical associations around the globe, including the World Health Organization, use this traditional symbol of medicine. More recently, many medical organizations have begun using a similar symbol, a short rod, entwined by two snakes and topped by a pair of wings. Now this is not actually a medical symbol, it's actually the caduceus of the Greek god Hermes. The caduceus was a magical staff belonging to Hermes, also known as the Roman god Mercury. And Hermes was not a god of medicine. Rather, he was a god of eloquence, invention, travel, and theft. So he was better known as the god of commerce. Draw what conclusions you will from that. A more clearly historical figure of ancient medicine is Alcmeon of Croton, born around 435 BC in southern Italy. A Pythagorean by philosophy, Alcmeon was known for his anatomical studies. He is the first person we have record of who dissected the eye and discovered the optic nerve. 
Alkmeon's theory of the mind included the idea that the brain is the seat of perception and thought, and that there are connections from all of the sense organs to the brain. He believed that it was pneuma, meaning breath or animal spirits, that ran through the body like neural signals. Disease, Alkmeon theorized, is at least in part due to a loss of balance in the body. He postulated a set of opposites, especially hot and cold, wet and dry, and bitter and sweet, that we need to balance in order to maintain health by controlling our temperature, nutrition, and so on. Probably the best known and most widely recognized of the ancient philosopher-physicians was Hippocrates, born around 460 BC in Kos in Asia Minor. Now Hippocrates was an Asclepiad. He was a member of that medical guild of Asclepius and is the originator of the Hippocratic Oath. Now the exact wording of this oath has changed over the years, but here it is in its original form. I swear by Apollo the physician and Asclepius, Hygieia, and Panacea, and all the gods and goddesses, that according to my ability and judgment, I will keep this oath and this covenant. To reckon him who taught me this art equally dear to me as my parents, to share my substance with him, and to relieve his necessities if required, to look upon his offspring on the same footing as my own brothers, and teach them this art, if they shall wish to learn it, without fee or stipulation, and that by precept, lecture, and every other mode of instruction, I will impart a knowledge of the art to my own sons, and those of my teachers, and to disciples who have signed the covenant and have taken an oath according to the law of medicine, but to no one else. I will follow that system of regimen which, according to my ability and judgment, I consider for the benefit of my patients, and abstain from whatever is deleterious and mischievous. I will give no deadly medicine to anyone if asked, nor suggest any such counsel. And in like manner, I will not give to a woman an abortive remedy. With purity and with holiness, I will pass my life and practice my art." I will not cut persons laboring under the stone, but I will leave this to be done by such men as are practitioners of this work. Into whatever houses I enter, I will go into them for the benefit of the sick, and will abstain from every voluntary act of mischief and corruption, and further, from the seduction of females, or males, of freemen and slaves. Whatever, in connection with my professional practice, or not in connection with it, I see or hear in the life of men, which ought not to be spoken of abroad, I will not divulge, as reckoning that all such should be kept secret. While I continue to keep this oath unviolated, may it be granted to me to enjoy life and practice of the art, respected by all men in all times. But should I trespass and violate this oath, may the reverse be my lot. Now I should point out that, contrary to popular belief, few if any doctors are required to take this or any other oath. Now despite Hippocrates' background, 
he preferred to avoid mystical interpretations and stick close to the empirical evidence. For example, in a treatise called De Morbo Sacru, On the Sacred Disease, Hippocrates discussed epilepsy. He dismissed the usual demonic possession theory and suggested that epilepsy was a hereditary disease of the brain. Hippocrates is also known for his theory of humors. According to Greek tradition, there are four basic substances, earth, water, air, and fire. Each of these substances has a corresponding humor or a biological liquid in the body, black bile, phlegm, blood, and yellow bile, in that order. These humors, just like the four basic substances, vary among two dimensions, hot or cold, wet or dry, like this. Air, or blood, is hot and wet. Fire, or yellow bile, are hot and dry. Water, or phlegm, are cold and wet. And earth, or black bile, is cold and dry. Like Alcmean said, the task of the physician is to restore balance when the relative proportions of these humors were out of balance. Hippocrates also noted some emotional connection to these humors. Now, it should be noted that, despite the odd humor theory, that Hippocrates, and with him Plato, correctly recognized the significance of the brain. A bit later, around 280 BC, Erasistratus of Chios dissected the brain and differentiated the various parts. Now, for the most part, of course, medicine in these centuries, and for many centuries to come, consisted of a blend of first aid, the setting of broken bones, for example, and herbal remedies, plus a considerable amount of praying to the gods for a miraculous intervention. In the Roman Empire, another physician gained fame that would last well into the Middle Ages. Galen was born around 130 AD in Pergamon in Asia Minor, a major center of learning at the time. Galen went to Alexandria, the center of learning, to study anatomy. In the Roman Empire, the dissection of human beings was not allowed, based, of course, on the superstitious fear of retribution, not on any feelings of human dignity. So, Galen studied by dissecting the great apes instead. At the age of 28, Galen returned home for a while to serve as a surgeon to the gladiators. His fame spread, and eventually he made it to Rome. In addition to a great deal of fairly decent concrete advice, Galen theorized that all life is based on pneuma, or spirit. Plants had natural spirit which causes growth. Animals have a vital spirit, which is responsible for movement. And human beings have animal spirit, from the word anima, meaning soul, which is thought to be responsible for thought. Galen further believed that cerebral spinal fluid was the animal spirit. And he noted that the cerebral spinal fluid was found in the cerebral vesicles of the brain as well as in the spinal cord. 
and Galen believed that the cerebral spinal fluid traveled out through the nerves to the muscles as well as in from the sensory organs. Not bad. It was Galen who added the idea of the temperaments to Hippocrates' four humors. And so blood became associated with the temperament of sanguine, which is cheerful. Phlegm with phlegmatic, sluggish, dull. Yellow bile with choleric, a tendency toward anger. And black bile, melancholy or sadness. Now note how these words have come down to us. We often use terms like, he is in a good humor, or I'm looking for a date who has a good sense of humor. We hear, he has a bad temper, as in temperature, or he has a dry wit. Notice that wet, dry dimension. Or he's a real hothead. Perhaps he loses his temper. He needs to cool down. Notice again that warm, cool dimension. The imbalances among these psychological states were believed to be the cause for disease. And, of course, this is the first known personality typology, and it had some influence on people as varied as Alfred Adler, Ivan Pavlov, and Hans Eysenck. The Rebirth of Medicine It would be some time before we would again see real progress made in medicine and physiology. In 1316, Mondino de Luzzi came out with the first European textbook on anatomy, appropriately titled Anatomia. Early in the 1500s, Leonardo da Vinci greatly increased knowledge in the field of medicine and anatomy with his numerous drawings of skulls and brains, including even a wax casting of the ventricles of the brain. In 1561, Gabriel Fallopio published Anatomical Observations, wherein he described, among many other things, the cranial nerves, and, of course, the fallopian tubes. But real progress had to wait for the invention of the microscope by Zacharias Janssen of Middleburg, Holland, in 1595. Now, this invention is sometimes credited to his father, Hans, but it was definitely refined by Antoine von Leeuwenhoek in Holland, later by Galileo, in Italy, and by Robert Hooke in England. Now, a quick digression. Soon after the invention of the microscope in 1595, in 1608, a colleague of Zacharias Janssen in Middleburg, a German by the name of Hans Lippersberg, invented the telescope. Another major event and step forward was William Harvey's exploration of the circulation of blood in 1628. Most physicians of the time, still using Galen's text, believed that the blood ebbed and flowed like a tide throughout the whole body. And we can't forget to mention the pioneering work of Michael Servetus, 
who was the first European to correctly describe the function of pulmonary circulation. This was in 1553, before the birth of William Harvey, but his contributions were not recognized for many years due to the burning of his books for their containing heretical theological beliefs. Centers of medical education developed at the universities at Padua, Italy, and Leiden, Holland. Here, students studied anatomy. They did post-mortem examinations and even dabbled in what we would now call pathology. They performed careful case studies, each with detailed measurements. Neurophysiology developed in parallel to all of the other medical and physiological developments. We could point to Thomas Willis's anatomical description of the brain in 1664 as the first major step. Willis's book was beautifully illustrated by Christopher Wren, the famous English artist and architect. And Willis coined the term neurology in 1681. A very significant contributor to the development of our understanding of the brain was none other than our old friend René Descartes. Descartes postulated a dualistic system with a mind-slash-soul interacting with the brain-slash-body. This interaction occurred by means of animal spirits, or pneuma. The will, which is an aspect of our souls, enters the brain as animal spirits via the pineal gland, and it interacts with the organization of nerves that represent established habits. These animal spirits then course through the nerves which were viewed as tiny tubes, into the muscles, causing the muscles to contract and so produce a behavior. Likewise, actions upon the sensory neurons cause an increase in pressure on the animal spirits, which then course through the nerves to the brain, influencing the structure of the brain by repetition, as well as passing on to the soul as perceptions. Sometimes, the actions of the senses led to a rather immediate response by the muscles, and these immediate muscular responses would be called reflexes by Descartes' countryman Jean Astruc. Reflexes were defined as cycles of action that do not require the intervention of the mind or the soul. Now, Descartes included in his definition of reflexes far more complex behaviors than we would include today. The passions, or emotions, also come from outside of the body, essentially as sensations. The passions lead to a variety of physiological changes, as well as corresponding reflex actions. We see a bear and we run. In animals, the passions are just sensations and reflexes. We human beings, however, experience the passions with our mind or soul, and we experience them as wonder, love, hate, desire, joy, 
and sadness, as well as hundreds of other combinations. Now, in Descartes' conception of the world, an animal body was a machine, simply taking in sensations and responding with reflexes. However, being a good Catholic, Descartes stopped short of describing the human body as a machine. To do so and offer that materialistic explanation would suggest that perhaps there was not a need for a divine creator to explain the physical world and therefore open the door to atheism. Descartes' ideas about the body being a machine, minus his ideas about the soul, would be promoted by Julien Offre de la Maitre in a landmark book called Man, a Machine, 1748. In this book, de la Maitre describes the human body as a machine that winds its own springs. Robert White would later lay down the neurological basics of the reflex and introduce the terms stimulus and response. In 1791, Luigi Galvani clinched these concepts with his famous experiments involving the electrical stimulation of frogs' nerves. About 1721, Lady Mary Montagu introduced a strange medical practice that she had seen while visiting in Turkey, the practice of inoculation. Instead of letting a full-blown case of smallpox damage their lovely skin, young women in Turkey had the pus from someone with a mild case of smallpox injected just under their skin. Now don't laugh. Today, people have themselves injected with the poison Botox just to erase wrinkles. Edward Jenner later began inoculating people against the smallpox virus by vaccinating them with the cowpox pus material. The antibodies produced made one immune to smallpox, as well as to further cases of cowpox. The 1800s. Medicine got its greatest boost, however, in the 1800s, especially after Louis Pasteur, 1822-1895, came up with a theory that diseases were caused by microorganisms. The new field of bacteriology continued with Pasteur's friend Joseph Lister, 1827-1912, who introduced the novel idea of antiseptic conditions in surgery especially washing one's hands. Charles Bell, 1774-1855, and Francois Magendie, 1783-1855, independently clarified the distinction between sensory and motor nerves. They each noted that sensory fibers enter the posterior roots of the spinal cord, and motor fibers leave the anterior roots. Charles Bell was also the first person to describe the facial paralysis we now call Bell's palsy, and Magende was the first to test the cerebellum's functions. Franz Joseph Gall, 1758-1828, of Vienna, and later Paris, 
studied the shapes of skulls and concluded that the various bumps and depressions in each person's head related to certain psychological and personality characteristics. This would become very popular as phrenology, even though serious scientists such as Bell and Florenz thought it was absurd. The physician Marie-Jean-Pierre Florence, 1794-1867, concluded that the cerebrum was in fact responsible for thought and will, and that it operates holistically, not as Gaul would have it. Florence also noted that other parts, the cerebellum, the medulla, had different functions, but that each also works holistically within itself. It is also Florence who introduced ablation as a way of studying the connection between the brain and behavior. However, things just never seem to be that simple. Physician Paul Broca, 1824-1880, a French surgeon, had a patient that lost the power of speech due to a lesion in what is now called Broca's area. Another surgeon, Carl Wernicke, published a book on aphasia in 1874. He, of course, discovered the significance of Wernicke's area. And in 1870, two researchers, Eduard Fritsch and Gustav Hitzig, used direct electrical stimulation of the brain of a dog to discover, among other things, the motor and sensory cortices. Four years later, Robert Bartholow does the same thing with a human brain. And their work established that there is indeed some localization of function. It just doesn't have anything to do with the bumps on the head. Johannes Müller, 1801-1858, working in Berlin, developed the doctrine of specific energy of nerves. Each nerve, when stimulated, leads to only one sensory experience even if that nerve is stimulated in a different manner than is usual. For example, try closing your eyes and then rubbing your eyes with your fingers. As you press against your eyeballs through your closed eyelids, you should experience flashes of light. That's because that light perception is the specific energy of the optic nerve. However, this understanding of specific energy of nerves had an unfortunate consequence, I think, in that it led to an increased belief in indirect realism, i.e. that we do not actually experience the world directly. <laughs> 